0: Father God, thank you so much for today and our time here and our time in your word, Father. And uh, as we get close to the end of 2 Timothy, I just thank you for uh, what I have learned and what we have learned through your word and through these uh, wonderful letters that that have been preserved uh, for us in your word. And uh, we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter chapter 2 in 2 Timothy... Uh, it, it was really um, kind of a positive sort of thing going on uh, in chapters, in verses 14 through 26. Paul is exhorting Timothy, and he's encouraging him, and he's cheering him on in a sense. And, and he's exhorting Timothy in, in dealing with the false teachers uh, and saying, don't, don't quarrel with them. Don't get caught up in, in um, godless chatter and, and don't have anything to do. With stupid arguments. And so he's exhorting Timothy in that. And then he's exhorting Timothy in his own personal contact and saying, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, who, uh, who does not need to be ashamed, that uh, one who rightly divides or, or correctly handles the word of truth. And, and he tells Timothy to, to flee evil desires and to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. And then finally, he exhorts Timothy at the end of chapter two to be gentle, uh, even with those who are in opposition uh, to him. And, And these are the words that he writes. He says, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must instruct, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape uh, the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So he's saying be gentle with these people. It's, it's, a, it's a, an optimistic tone. And that optimistic tone changes very quickly as we change uh, into the next chapter with the words, but mark this. In verse 1, uh, Paul writes this. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Whoa, okay. All of a sudden, we have a, a, a huge change. That word, um, so he's contrasting what he's just said uh, about being gentle and, and about do not quarrel. And, but even so, mark this. Contrasting that with the word but. And, and that, word, the, that word mark this, so the word translated mark this means to know. So he's saying, Timothy, know this. Be very aware of this. There are terrible days ahead. That word for terrible uh, has a meaning of violent or fierce or hard to deal with. So what lies ahead is very difficult. So essentially, Paul is saying, look, they argue and they quarrel, but be gentle with them, but know this, no matter what you do it's going to get worse, well, thank you for the encouragement, Paul. <laughs> we appreciate it, uh, and he says that he calls the uh, the time the last days now that term last days, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days that's an Old Testament term uh, and in fact uh, it's, uh, it's used in one place. It's used in Joel 2.28, where Joel writes about the last days, and, and God says through Joel the prophet, in the last days I will pour out my spirit, and your young men will prophesy, and your old men will have visions. And so he's talking about pouring out his spirit. God is talking about pouring out his spirit in the last days. And at Pentecost, uh, Peter referenced that verse. And he says, this is what you're seeing. Uh, All these these people speaking in tongues and and, uh, everything that's going on around you. uh, you, What you're seeing is the fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by Joel that God would pour out his spirit in the last days. And it refers to that last days, and, and Joel says this, as a time just before the great and glorious day of the Lord. What we might call judgment day. The final day. So... When are they? What is Paul talking about? Well, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. And what I said then, and I believe is being taught here, is that it is it is now. That all the time from Pentecost, from the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, to the time of Christ's return, are the last days. But then why does Paul speak in the future? There will be terrible times. Um, he, he begins by referring to them in the future. But notice as we get down, and I didn't read the whole thing, but we will in a minute, that he turns to the present tense in in verse 5. He says, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Now Paul could be saying, when the time comes, have nothing to do with them. But given the context of the whole chapter, it makes more sense that this is already starting to happen. And Paul's warning is, look, it's already the last days, but it is going to get worse. And so Paul's point in here is to, um, uh, to exhort Timothy and to warn Timothy that things will get worse. In a sense, the future is now. So we are living, uh, as we said a, a few weeks ago, we are living in the last days, as, as was Paul, and as were Paul and Timothy when Paul wrote this. Um, so Paul is warning Timothy that as we approach the final day, things will get worse. Uh, And then he he goes on in verses 2 through 9 to explain why these are terrible days. We're going to start with verses 2 through 5. And this is sort of a litany of the behavior of godless people. And not not even godless people. Because Oh, wait, no, go back. Um, Of of, uh, people, some of whom were worming their way into the church as well, sort of their behavior and their attitudes. Um, The core of this entire passage is the first thing that Paul writes. They will be lovers of themselves. The core to this behavior, the key to it at its root is selfishness. And he then just after he says lovers of themselves, he says lovers of money. And I love what Dr. Donald Guthrie said about this. He said moral corruption follows from love falsely directed. Self-centeredness and material advantages, when they become the chief objects of affection, destroy all moral values. And the subsequent list of vices is their natural fruit. So when someone becomes a lover of self and a lover of things above all else, this is what happens. They become boastful, proud, abusive. They become all of those things Um, Now, he ends it, kind of picture frames it uh, at the end with another two other things where he says that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's a significant ending because essentially what he's saying is that pleasure has become a substitute for God. That people would rather have pleasure than to seek God. Does that sound contemporary to you? Does that sound like Paul could have written that like yesterday? Uh, In many ways, we live in a pleasure-saturated society. And I believe that, that we are entertaining ourselves to death, to spiritual death. Overexposure to sensual pleasure deadens our spiritual sensitivity. And we have way too much anecdotal evidence of that. Now, we don't have time to go through each one of these things, and probably if we did, we'd all be walking out of here like this. (laughs) But I do want to point out a few of them, because I think that they're important. The first one I want to go through is where he says they are boastful and proud. Those words put together um, carry the idea of, uh, of the bounce of swaggering. First thing I thought of, sorry I'm a sports fan, is touchdown dances. Except for now, they're not just touchdown dances, okay? Guy makes a catch for a first down. That's all he got to do. And he's and he and he's got, look at me. You know what? I have never, I am a good cook. I have never gotten up from the dinner table after everybody said that was a good meal. I got, me, me, I know. That's the picture I get of a bo- bo- boastful swaggering, the swaggering of arrogance. it's all about me, and I 'm so great. I knew that would make you laugh. And thank you. I, t- I asked Katie to give me a good you know touchdown dance, but she refused. She said, "You will not do that in front of people." <laughs> Katie, I did. <laughs> That word abusive is the worst word blasphemoy. Well, it, what do we get from that? Blasphemy. But in this case, it isn't blasphemy against God, it means abusive language toward other human beings. Except for, we learn in Scripture that to speak abusively to other people is blasphemy against God because we are God's creations. And so to blaspheme God's creation is to blaspheme God. James 3, 9, and 10 carries this idea with it when James writes, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And then that word unforgiving means literally means without a truce one of the scholars who like big words said it means implacable. Here's what I would say. It means I refuse to reconcile. I choose, I will not steadfastly refuse to forgive you. I would rather live with unforgiveness than to reconcile. Um, but the, the thing that is surprising in this is at the end, where he, Paul says having a Form of godliness. See, these aren't people who have rejected religion. These are not atheists. They are people who who have a form of godliness and yet deny its power. So religion is not denied, but it amounts to nothing more than an empty shell. Um, essentially, um, it, it, there is a there is a, a going through the motions. There is. An outward form of religion, but there is no spiritual power inside of it. Dr. Guthrie again says they have no conception of the gospel as a regenerating force. And then Paul says, have nothing to do with them, these people. who have a form of godliness and yet deny its power. Paul here is talking about people who are trying to make their way into the church or who are even part of the church, and their intention is to wend their divisive ways upon the church. And he's going to talk more about that in just a minute. And Paul flatly says, have nothing to do with them. The overall picture we have here is is very depressing Honestly, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a sad picture of people who are tragically and totally unhappy. And they make the lives of everyone around them unhappy. Nobody comes out unscathed when someone's moral compass is pointed to themselves. And that's the picture that Paul has given us. And these people do more than just be selfish. They are also victimizers, particularly of women. So in verses 6 and 7, Paul says this uh, of these people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes. That's a very, very strong word picture, isn't it? They're the kind of uh, who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Paul here is talking about a particular kind of woman uh, and a particular kind of person because that is exactly who these false teachers, who these people preyed upon. And unfortunately, it still happens today. They intentionally preyed upon vulnerable women, seducing them to believe their heresies. In fact, that word that they worm their ways in homes and gain control over weak willed women, that verb for gain control means they take captive, literally means they take them captive. And... Um, it's actually a word that's used for prisoners of war, taking a prisoner of war captive. Captive, And then he says these women are weighed down, uh, loaded down with sins. It is very likely that these are women who, who came to the church and came to Christ, but in the process of doing that, they have come out of illicit lifestyles, of very sinful um, lifestyles. And and so uh, they're, they're grasping at anything because they're struggling with sin and continuing to struggle with sin. They're grasping at anything that might help them. To use a, a contemporary term, we might say that they are addicts. And, and in fact, this language, I've got to tell you, is... It could be used in a, in a today's sort of a book about addiction, especially verse 7 where it says, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Those who are addicted to some type of sin are unable to see truth. They think they're speaking logically, and anyone who's not in that addiction mindset would go, yo, wrong, but not to them because their reality, their logic, they think they're thinking linearly. And they're not. They're way off base. And that's the type of person that these men would prey upon. Um, there is nothing new under the sun. These are the kinds of people that today uh, troll the Internet to find vul- vulnerable women who are desperate in l- for love. And when they find them, they pounce. Or the people that read the obituaries to find out when everyone's going to be at the funeral service. Um, And unfortunately, even such victimization takes place in the church. Sometimes it begins with counseling sessions, and it becomes something uh, very, very dangerous and very sinful because these women were vulnerable, and so the men preyed on him. Paul's point isn't about the women. He He would counsel the church to care for and build up those women and teach those women. His point is about the false teachers who are victimizing these women. And then he compares them to Janice and Jambras uh, in verses 8 and 9. And he says, just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Well, according to Jewish tradition, Janus and Jambres were the two magicians in Pharaoh's court who tried, sometimes successfully, uh, to imitate the miracles that God worked through Moses. And, And Paul's point here is that just as Janus and Jambres stood against the truth, took their stand against God in the court of Pharaoh, these men are taking their stand against the truth and against God, But he ends with an encouragement, saying they won't get far. Just like Janice and Jambres were exposed as imposters, so too will these men be exposed as imposters. So the picture we have in the first nine verses of 2 Timothy 3 is of of the degeneration of society. Uh, A number of years ago, there was an article about contemporary society that bemoaned the state of uh, the youth of the time, that they were disobedient, and they were rebellious, and, and that they were selfish. And it was only until the end of the article that you found out that the author was a Greek philosopher. And, and in a sense, we have had this kind of of depravity. Depravity is nothing new. Read any history book. My husband and I... Watched the movie Luther the other night. Anybody seen the movie Luther? Um, and, and there is depravity in the 1500s throughout that. Ancient, ancient tyrants, uh, we're going to learn, uh, if, you, if you stick with me for Esther next semester, uh, were despotic. There's a reason that there is a word like that. And, and the, the Middle Ages, there was incredible inhumanity in that time. And we come down to our, our own uh, 20th and 21st centuries with Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot and a legion of Middle Eastern tyrants that have done unspeakable things. Uh, and, and then there are parts of our own community that are terrorized by drugs and gangs and drive-by shootings. There is certainly a degeneration in society, but is it getting worse, as Paul said it would? Uh, In a sense, because depravity is nothing new, it's hard to say, But, but I do believe that it isn't just despots that are acting these ways anymore. I do believe that we are becoming, as a people, more and more selfish and godless. And unfortunately, the Bible tells us that it will get worse before it gets better. Then it'll get a lot better, but it will get worse before it gets better. And there's a strange dichotomy here because because Paul is talking about it's bad and it's going to get worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. Uh, And the Bible tells us that that is true. But doesn't the Bible also tell us that Jesus has won the victory? Doesn't it also tell us that God is omnipotent? Shouldn't things be getting better then? Dr. N.T. Wright, when he was writing about this in his commentary, talked about, he was a rugby player in his youth, and he talked about a time when his team was so badly beating the other team that at some point the team knew for sure it was defeated. And so it was at that point the team thought, you know what? We can't win, but we can go out screaming. And so they began kicking and biting and hitting and just playing nasty. Not that rugby isn't nasty anyway, because it is. But but I mean, even nastier than real rugby, you know, lawful rugby is. And they just were going to take out everyone they could with him, with them, uh, before they before they lost. In a sense, Satan is like that rugby team. He knows he's toast, so he's going to create as much chaos and mayhem and mayhem and, and heartache as he can uh, in the meantime. Things, and frankly, our own sinfulness helps him out, (laughs) too. Um, Things are getting worse, and they will get still worse. But make no mistake about who will have the victory in the end. In fact, Jesus has already won our victory over sin and death and Satan. So Paul, is, Paul knows that what he's just written is, is kind of depressing. And, and he wasn't a depressing sort of guy, even though he knew he was going to die. He wasn't that maudlin. And so he's going to turn things around, and he's going to begin to give Timothy a little bit of encouragement uh, and compare those bad guys, particularly with himself. And in verses 10 through 13, he says this, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me, from all of them. I have to tell you that I can't read this without flashing back to when I was preparing to teach Acts. And I remember sitting in the, the eye doctor's office with my mother reading Acts. And I turned to her and I said, I'm not going to have anything to say. All I'm going to say is, and then he got kicked out of Lystra, and then he got kicked out of Derb, and then he got kicked out of, because he just keeps getting beat up and sent out of town. And so Paul's, this is Paul's talking about that very time when he was persecuted over, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead. And then he says this, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's going to counter the negative with the positive. And that word for you, as we've seen before, in the Greek is emphatic. So he's saying, these guys are really bad. But you, Timothy, you, on the other hand, have seen a good example in my own life. And and so he is encouraging Timothy by talking about his own example. And he says, you know all about my teaching and my life. Uh, Those words, you know all about, in in the Greek that means to follow, uh, literally. So Paul is saying, you have followed, you have seen it, you have literally physically followed me through this time. But you have also followed with your mind. You have understood with your mind what it is I have gone through. So, so Timothy knows and understands and has seen how Paul has lived his life and what Paul has suffered. Uh, so what is it then that Timothy knows that he has followed? Well, first of all, Paul says, you know all about my teaching. You know all about my doctrine." what I have taught. And secondly he says, you know all about my way of life, my behavior. So again as we saw over and over again in 1 Timothy, we see in 2 Timothy this combination of doctrine and behavior of what we believe and how we live. That what we believe affects the way we behave. And, And Paul says, unlike the false teachers, Paul's motivations are pure. His teaching is true, and he has suffered because of it. And and then he goes on to say in verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And sometimes, you know, I read that and I think, exactly, I I mean, my neighbor thinks I'm nuts. I don't think that's persecution, because I'm kind of nuts. But, you know, that's not really persecution. Well, that word everyone there is the word pantes. I've just really had this desire to say panties, and it may be panties, (laughs) but I decided maybe I shouldn't do that. Um, And and in this context, it does not mean literally everyone without exception, but rather it means that Paul is not an exception, that Paul being persecuted is not unusual, um, and that others will be persecuted for their faith. In essence, Paul is saying that persecution is not exceptional for those particularly under Roman rule and in other parts of our world, for those who want to live a life that is godly. It is true, however, that no matter where we are, no matter where we live, we will face opposition uh, to our faith, if not from unbelievers, if not from the government, certainly from the enemy of our souls who will ra- wage spiritual warfare ...in our lives if we are living as God desires. And then I found very interesting that at the end he says... uh, ...evil men will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. It's very interesting. They are deceiving others. But it is at least in part because they themselves are deceived. And things will only get worse for them. It's almost... It carries with it almost a sense of pity that Paul has... For these men who are deceived. And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul turns the comparison to Timothy and compares uh, what, what he is saying to Timothy. And he says, But as for you, again emphatic, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So, But as for you, you too need to live a life like I have lived. And that's emphatic. And, and when he says continue in, that word means abide in, live in the truths you have learned. Unlike the dece- deceivers, Timothy, you teach truth, live in the truth, be steeped, be marinated in, as, as Tim Wiebe would say, the truth of God that you have grown up in, that you have learned from infancy. Um, and, and you know it's true because you know the character of the people who taught it to you, most notably his mother, his grandmother, and Paul. And then we're going to reread verse 15. Um, Paul gives what is probably the most um, eloquent and extensive um verses and are the most elegant and extensive verses in the Bible about the Bible itself, what the Bible has to say about the Bible itself. In verses 15 through 17, he says, talking about Timothy, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All of scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in verse 15, when he says, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, what are the Holy Scriptures in that verse? Well, Paul there is talking about the Old Testament. Because as Timothy was growing up, that is what he would have learned, is the Old Testament. But the key is that what he would have been learning is how the Old Testament points to Christ. How Christ is the fulfillment of everything taught in the Old Testament. And then he says that those scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation they give you wisdom they don't save in themselves but they are able to make us wise for our salvation. But then he uses the word scripture again in verse 16 where he says all scripture is god breathed. So what does scripture mean there? Well the word there is graph or graphe I'm not sure how you would pronounce it. Um, But it's a different word, and it would have also included the Old Testament and how it relates to Christ. But I believe um, that that Paul means all of Scripture here. And at this time, there would have been uh, already two, uh, possibly three Gospels that we still have. um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, certainly Mark, um, circulating, written down at that time that would have been considered Scripture. There would have been sayings of Jesus. Um, that would have been considered Scripture. And I had you read this week in 2 Timothy, or Second Peter, excuse me, where Peter refers to Paul's letter as graphic, as Scripture. So even at this time, Paul's writings would have been considered Scripture. So I believe it is, as, as Dr. Leifold would say, not unreasonable. Uh, I believe that it is right and true for us to believe that when Paul writes all Scripture is God-breathed, that even though we didn't have an organized canon at the time he wrote that, that took several hundred years, that that verse applies to everything that is in this book, that all scripture is God-breathed. Now, that word God-breathed is theonustas. The word theo is the root word for God, and the word nustos is a, is a root word for relating to breathing. Some uh, translations translate that inspired, which is true, but I think it means more than that, that it is from the very mouth of God, that it is God's very word. He breathed it out, and it is, it is in fact, inspired by him. But Timothy would have known that, and he would have believed that already. I don't think that's the point that Paul is making, because today there is debate about whether all scripture is God-breathed. But that uh, would not have been debated by believers in Paul's day. Yeah, all of scripture is is from God. That's not the point that Paul is making. Paul is talking here, he says all scripture is God-breathed, but his point is that it's useful. His point is the purpose of God's God-breathed word. And he says it is useful, first of all, For teaching and rebuking. So he has a positive thing, teaching, and he has a negative thing, rebuking. It's a good thing. It's just a negative thing. Uh, And those have to do with doctrine. So all all scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for us to learn what is sound doctrine, what is true doctrine. It is also useful in combating what is false doctrine. Because if it's, if it's against what is in here, it's false. I don't care who said it. If it's opposed to what's in here, it's false. So God's word is useful both for teaching us what is true and helping us to recognize and combat what is false doctrine. The second two things he says, he says correcting and training in righteousness. These have to do with the way we live our lives. And the first one is negative, correcting wrong behavior, sinful behavior, and training us in righteousness, training us to live a life the way God wants us to live. Again, we see this connection between doctrine and behavior, between what we believe and how we live. Um, And then the purpose of God's word is given in verse 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that women may be thoroughly equipped for every good work as well. So that we might be thoroughly equipped, not partially equipped, not halfway there, but so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been saved so that we might be equipped, thoroughly equipped to do the good works that God has for us to do. It's the same thought Paul had in, in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Why did I write down Romans? That's just weird. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You have been saved for... Good works. The next thing he says is, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's saying the same thing here, that we have been saved and we have God's word, which is useful to help us do what God, for God to equip us to do what he has called us to do. I love that before he talks about verse 16 about God's word, he's already said, what, uh, what it is useful for. He says that it is useful for making you wise. And then he says all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for training, or for, excuse me, for correcting, no, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for what God has prepared for us to do. Well, let's end today uh, uh, talking about, I want to talk a little bit about what is it that God is equipping us for, which I don't like ending with uh, prepositions. But for what is God equipping you? But my my computer didn't like that. It had squiggly lines everywhere. That sentence doesn't make sense. It's grammatically correct. Microsoft just doesn't know that it's grammatically correct. God has promised to thoroughly equip us. He's he doesn't say, "Hey, I'll help you out. I've got your back." He doesn't say, I'll make you ready, or even that I'll equip you for what you're supposed to do. He promises to thoroughly equip us for what he has called us to do. Which begs the question, well, what has he called us to do? Years ago, a woman um, at the church I was attending came up to me with a book and said, Here, I want you to have this book because I think you should homeschool Josh. Josh was two. And I said, I, Thank you. I will never homeschool So I don't need the book. And she said, you know what? I'm moving. I don't need the book. So here's the book. Take it anyway. She didn't homeschool. Her kids were in public school. So I said, okay, I took the book. I put it on my shelf. A few years later, because I'm maniacal and I was a teacher, I was searching every possible possible educational opportunity for my son. I visited all the Christian schools. I visited the public school. And at some point, I said this to myself. You know, I am not being... Um, genuine, I'm being disingenuous in this whole process, if I won't even consider homeschooling. I mean, I know I'll never do it, but if I don't even put it on the table, then I'm not being honest. Well, so how do I put that on the table? I know. I'll read that book that Kay gave me. So I got the book down off the shelf and dusted it off. It was called Homegrown Kids by Raymond Moore, who, like, is 952 years old right now. He homeschooled his kids back in the 50s. And so I sat down to read this book because I had to at least be open to God, even though I knew God wouldn't call me homeschooling. And I sat down to read this book, and Jeff and I were sitting in the living room, and I read this line. You are the best person to teach your children because nobody loves your child more and nobody knows your child better than you do. And I looked up at Jeff and I said, we're supposed to homeschool. And he said, I know. (laughs) I'm still homeschooling like 20 years later or something like that, 15 uh, years later. So God had already been equipping me. I was sure that I could not homeschool because this is what I was pretty sure would happen every day. You know what? I don't want to do math. Let's go get lunch. But that's not what happens because you see, God has thoroughly equipped me and he has given me a passion for my children's education. And, you know, if they don't learn their timetables, it's on me. So I, you know, if they don't know how to read, that's my fault. So he has already begun to thoroughly equip me to take this journey of homeschooling. Now, my point is not to convince you to homeschool, although you can talk to me afterward if you're, you know, is God calling me to homeschool because I've got my whole spiel on that. My point is not to convince you to homeschool. My point is this, that whatever God is calling you to, he will thoroughly equip you. He probably already is. And as I've talked to some of you this semester, I've had this sense that God is at work in his word through First and 2 Timothy, opening our eyes to new things he has for us and new paths he wants us to walk. Uh, and I know for a fact that some of you are approaching or have have just entered into new, new things as, as mothers, biological and adoptive. And, and that that's a, that's a scary road ahead for you. And I want to encourage you by saying that God has, in fact, he already will already has started to, to equip you, to thoroughly equip you for that. In fact, Peter tells us in Second Peter, I think it's my next slide, that we already have everything we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Whatever it is that you believe God is calling you to in ministry or in your marriage or in your parenting, or in your family, or in your job. I want you to know that God will thoroughly equip you through his word as you continue in, as you abide in, as you live in what you have learned from him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read a passage that is thoroughly depressing, and end up thoroughly encouraged because of the truth of your word, because of the power of your word, but most of all, God, because of who you are. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. One more week. We'll see you next week.